The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 7 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC7. This is Secret Church 7, Episode 3. Now the question is, what happens when they come together, angels and demons in spiritual warfare, in the context of our lives on the earth? We're going to look at three different periods of redemptive history. Old Testament, Christ and the Gospels, and then New Testament church. And our challenge is, don't miss this, our challenge is to think about, are there any things that are unique in each of these periods of redemptive history? Are there any things that are distinct or unique in each one? And then, are there any things that are continual and constant through each one? So just kind of be thinking about that. Let's start with the Old Testament and spiritual warfare. What we've got to realize is that in the world surrounding Israel, three major empires, Canaanite, Egyptian, and Babylonian, we see opposite Israel in the Old Testament. They were all dominated by occult beliefs and practices. They were teeming with demon worship, spirits, gods, idols, exorcism, demon possession, phenomena. Demonism and spiritism were rampant. Demonic agents... And demonic activities, possession and exorcism, demonic explanations were prevalent. What I mean by that is that it was common for people to explain away actions or events in those cultures, both good and bad, as a consequence of spirits or gods or demons at work. You needed to have favor with local demons, spirits, or gods in order to appease the evil, receive their blessings. All too often, Israel itself became engrossed in those practices. And what I want you to see is idolatrous manifestations were pervasive. Idolatrous manifestations. I put Deuteronomy 32 here because, listen to what it says. They made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. Talking about God. They sacrificed to demons which are not God. Gods they had not known. Gods that had recently appeared. Gods your fathers did not fear. Did you catch that? Demons here in Deuteronomy 32 are equated with false gods, idols. And this is key because when you read through the Old Testament, you won't see demons mentioned a lot. That doesn't mean that the Old Testament was ignoring spiritual warfare. I want you to see that all of the idolatry and all the false gods that we see all over the place, this is the work of demons. And the Old Testament specifically makes that connection. And so the idolatry in pagan nations and the idolatry that infiltrated the Israelite nation was a picture of demonic worship. Satan and his demons were evident in astrologers, soothsayers, priests, medians, idolaters in all of these cultures. And the result was moral degradation in these cultures and the way this influenced Israel. There was sexual perversion through ritual prostitution, Deuteronomy 23, child sacrifice, In Psalm 106, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. It was a horrible picture of moral degradation and physical devastation. In 1 Kings 18, we see two pictures. We see worshipers of idols slashing themselves. And then we see in 1 Kings 18, their absolute slaughter under the judgment of God. So, We're not just looking in the Old Testament for times where you see demon or angel mentioned. We're looking at the picture of satanic, demonic influence behind all of the idolatry and immorality that we are seeing in the Old Testament. So what I want us to do is I want us to look at 
There's six texts here. And I want us to think, I'm gonna add one more, so we're gonna do seven. But I want us to fly through them, but think through these six texts. And I want you to turn to them. We're not gonna read through the whole passage of every one, but I want you to turn to each one just so you can reference it. Genesis chapter three. What I'm trying to do here is isolate particular texts and just get us to think through what are these texts teaching us about spiritual warfare in the Old Testament, some main texts. Six of them here, I'm gonna add one at the end. So the first is obvious, Genesis chapter three, verse one through 15. And there are a ton of things we could think through in this passage when it comes to spiritual warfare. What I want us to think about, this is just the overview. Obviously the serpent comes to Eve, tempts Eve, and then that relates to Adam. They eat of the fruit and then they are they're guilty before God. They're hiding from God. God comes to them and says, what is it you've done? Adam says, she did it. Eve says, he made me do it, talking to the serpent. And what we see is God's curse on the serpent and God's curse on Eve, God's curse on Adam. And in the end of the passage, they are banished from the Garden of Eden. That's the overview of Genesis 3, 1 through 24, really. Now think about the nature of our adversary according to Genesis 3. What the Old Testament is showing us very clear here. When it comes to spiritual warfare is that God is creator and Satan is creature. Some of, these are, some of these things are gonna seem a little repetitive of what we've seen, but I, I just wanna let these texts speak for themselves. Satan is clearly, undoubtedly, on the creature side of the creator-creator creature divide. He is a creature. Not only is he created by God, but Satan is subordinate to God. God is sovereign, Satan is subordinate. From the very first picture of spiritual warfare in the Bible, we could not have a clearer, stronger picture of God's sovereign authority and power over Satan and evil. God's sovereign. Satan is subject to God. And this is huge. In the cultic worldviews of the surrounding nations, demons and evil forces had equal independent power. That's the way most people think about good and evil. Warring, equal, independent forces. It's kind of a Star Wars thing. Going out one another, good and evil, fighting. That's not the case in the biblical worldview. Here, evil spirits, the devil himself is radically subordinate to God. This is not dualism. This is domination. This is not dueling powers in Genesis 3. This is God dominating Satan. Satan is accountable to God and Satan is cursed by God. So that's the nature of our adversary. God creator, Satan creature. His characteristics, think about what Genesis 3 teaches us. He can speak. He is smart. He is no fool. Fool. He's cunning. He knows right where to attack. He attacks Eve, not Adam, because Eve indirectly had heard this command from God through Adam. He starts with what seems like an innocent question. Uses what seems like, that's not a big deal to go down a slippery slope. Promising blessing. The evil one is promising good to Eve. Don't believe it, Eve. Don't believe it, brother or sister, when he promises good to you. Don't believe him. He's smart. He's not going to confront you. He's not going to come and say, Hi, I'm Satan. Follow me. He's going to entice you and lead you toward that which he is claiming is good 
He'll use all kinds of different means on your college campus or in your workplace, in your neighborhood or on your TV or on the internet. In your friendships. If you knew it was Satan, you'd be a lot less inclined to say yes, right? He maligns God's character. We've seen this before. He switches from Lord God, a name that mentions the goodness and the greatness of God and just refers to God takes out his goodness in Genesis 3, a very subtle but important shift that happens in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. He questions God's word. Temptation entered the world through the words, did God really say? Eve should have been from the very beginning, when, as soon as he said that, been very suspicious. She should have been suspicious when a snake started talking to her. But even beyond that, <laughs> first things he says, Did God really say this? And this is exactly what he is doing, the adversary is doing across our culture. God really say that? The really truth, Bible? I mean, come on. God really say these things? And he has an intent. Satan is a malicious liar and murderer. This is the picture of the adversary from the beginning. He is lying and aiming for murder. And that's the nature of our adversary. Now what about our warfare? And in Genesis 3, we realize the dominant question in spiritual warfare is simply this. Who will rule our hearts? Satan going to rule your heart or is God going to rule your heart? See see spiritual warfare for what it is. It is a battle for your heart. Who are you going to give your heart to? Whose voice are you going to listen to? Who will we trust and obey? Just let this soak in for a sec. The thought that I have chosen to let Satan rule my heart instead of God. That I have chosen to listen to his voice. Satan's voice instead of God's. That in my sin, I have chosen to trust and obey Satan instead of God. See sin for the filth and the wickedness that it is. Don't trust him. Don't obey him. Don't listen to him. Don't let him rule your heart. This is the nature of our warfare. See the consequences of our defeat. The result of sin is temporal suffering. Both man and woman are cursed, banished from the garden. Temporal suffering. The penalty of sin is eternal death. Blocked from the tree of life. Mark it down, brothers and sisters. Mark it down. Those who listen to the serpent's voice will feel the serpent's fangs. God, help us to feel the horror of Genesis 3. Now, there's a beautiful promise in the middle of it. So I don't want to leave it all with bad news. There's a beautiful promise in the middle of it that we're going to come back to. Deliverance is coming, God says. So that's the first text. Second text. First Samuel, now I want you to note this. I think, it's, I think it's wrong in your book. First Samuel 16. 
1 Samuel 16, verses 13 through 23. So turn over there, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 13 through 23. Trying to figure out how we can, we can go through this without reading every single one of these passages. That one was familiar to you. This one is, is a little bit different. Listen to what, what happens. I'll, I'll read the beginning here. This happens right after Samuel is anointed. Samuel anoints David as soon coming king over Israel. And in contrast to the spirit of the Lord on David, which is what verse 13 talks about, verse 14 talks about an evil spirit that begins to torment Saul. Listen to verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendant said to him, see an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the harp. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes upon you and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine looking man and the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much and David became one of his armor bearers. Saul sent word to Jesse saying, allow David to remain in my service for I am pleased with him. Whenever the spirit from God came upon Saul, David would take his harp and play. Then relief would come to Saul, he would feel better and the devil, the evil spirit would leave him. Now, now we gotta be careful not to jump to all kinds of fanciful conclusions here, okay? Well, if you play some good music, demons will flee. So all kinds of, let's look at this text and its context. Now this is interesting, circle this. Four different times, The Bible talks about an evil spirit from the Lord or from God. Verse 14, an evil spirit from the Lord. Verse 15, an evil spirit from God. Verse 16, you might circle it here, evil spirit from God. And then in verse 23, the spirit from God. Now what's that about? An evil spirit from God. The picture is a demon, an evil spirit who received permission from God to torment Saul. And this is, this is the point of the story. Why would God allow an evil spirit to torment Saul? First, because God was judging Saul. God is sending a tormentor, and this is a direct result of Saul's sin. If you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23, Samuel talked about in reference to Saul's Rebellion, his rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you as king. Saul, 1 Samuel 15, 23, had rejected God. So the picture is in 1 Samuel 16, God is judging Saul and at the same time, God was exalting David as the coming king and allowing David to bless Saul with peace. And so here's two important principles that we need to take away from this picture. First, the powers of evil are inferior to God. Again, we see this. Evil spirits are acting only within the divine permission of God. They are subordinate to God. And the spirit tormenting Saul is a consequence of his own sin. This is a story about the punishment of sin in Saul's life. The demon's not making Saul sin here. The demon is a consequence of his sin. Okay, next passage. Keep turning to the right and you'll come to 1 Samuel chapter 28. And this is probably the longest passage showing <coughs> the occult underside of life. And it's an interesting story to say the least. We're not going to read through the whole chapter. Here's what happens. Saul 
had abolished the spiritists and mediums from the land. But then when it came time to seek out, he wanted to find information, he sent for the witch of Endor, a spiritist, a medium. And he dressed up and went to the witch and he said, will you bring up Samuel from the dead to talk with me about what's going to happen? And so it's what happens. She does that and Samuel pronounces the condemnation of God upon Saul for his disobedience and rebellion against God and in many ways, but particularly in doing this. That's summary in a nutshell of 1 Samuel 28, 3 through 25. Now, there's so much in each of these texts we could look at, but what I want you to see as we're thinking about spiritual warfare is this. God's sovereignty reigns over all spiritual evil. God controls everything. He is not, God is not in 1 Samuel 28 condoning spiritism. Any more than the cross is God condoning murder. Did you catch that? Not condoning spiritism. But he is in control of evil practices, including spiritism, mediums. And we're going to talk about how God and evil relate when we get to the end of this picture. So just hold on to some of those thoughts. But let this soak in. Even the forbidden and utterly detestable is still ultimately under the sovereign control of God. And second, God's sovereignty reigns over all spiritual evil and God's wrath reigns down on all human rebellion. And what we find out is the Lord killed Saul for rebelling against him and consulting this medium. First Chronicles 10, Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance and did not inquire of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, son of Jesse. This is a story about how God sends lying spirits into the mouths of prophets to lead King Ahab to his destruction. So that's the summary. God sending lying spirits into the mouths of prophets who will then lead Ahab, King Ahab, to his destruction. So what's that all about? And yet again here, I want you to see that in the Old Testament, we see a picture of God, a holy God who uses an evil spirit as an agent of his judgment. This is key. The spirit is an agent of the judgment of God. And ultimately, a holy God using an evil spirit to accomplish his purposes, to bring about what he had said. Now, this had gone back to Ahab's sin. You go back to 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 33, you find out that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to, to anger than did all of the kings of Israel before him. He was rampant in sin. Just like we saw in the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18, God is using false prophets here to bring about judgment on a pagan king. So that's the picture, a holy God actually using an evil spirit as an agent of his judgment to accomplish his purposes. Now Job 1, 6 through chapter 2, verse 10. This is the story, if, you, if you're familiar with Job, of God's conversation with Satan in heaven preceding what happens to Job, kind of round one and then round two. What happens to Job when the 
nations where, where catastrophic things begin to happen, nations begin to attack, uh, Chaldeans, and, and what happens is Job's crops, his land, his property, and his children are completely destroyed. And then in chapter two, after Satan comes back and talks with God, then Job is afflicted with boils. And that's where chapter two ends. What do we learn about spiritual warfare in this conversation between God and Satan? The primary truth, yet again, is God's sovereignty. Don't miss it. In Job 1 and 2, Satan speaks when spoken to. Satan acts within God's permission. Satan is not doing anything that God has not allowed him to do, and that God has not already allowed him to do, acting within God's permission and acting to fulfill God's purpose. God's purpose is in the end to bring Job to the point where he would say, my ears had heard, but now my eyes have seen you. And Job came to a deeper knowledge of the greatness of God. Don't miss this. Job came to a deeper knowledge of the greatness of God because of the work of Satan in his life. Job came to a deeper knowledge of the greatness of God because of the work of Satan in his life. Satan acting within divine permission and ultimately fulfilling divine purpose. So the picture is God's sovereignty. The primary victory is Job's morality. The question that Job, the book of Job gives us is, is Job going to curse God? Obviously he was tempted and Satan said he would. Instead, what he does is Job glorifies God. And it's interesting. You'll notice in Job 1 and 2, Job doesn't, doesn't mention Satan. He doesn't mention the Raiders and thieves who plundered his property and killed his family. He doesn't even talk about, focus on the painful sores all over his body or the rejection he was receiving from his wife. Instead, the whole drama in the book of Job is Job wrestling with God because he knows God is the ultimate cause here. Shall we accept good from God, comfort from God, and not trouble from God? He knows this is a very God-centered perspective of spiritual warfare and suffering. Job glorifies God and Job humiliates Satan. This is just a side note, but I, I'm sure that there are a variety of different circumstances represented around this room where you might find yourself in a confusing time, in a time where you were walking through a valley of some sort. And especially if you find yourself now in that place or in preparation for a time when you might find yourself in that place. I want to remind you that suffering can only rightly be understood from the sovereign perspective of heaven. This is just a side note here, but it's a part of Job glorifying God and humiliating Satan. Job had no idea that there was a conversation that had gone on in heaven between God and Satan. We know that reading this book. Job did not know that as he walked through this in his life. And as a result, he had a very limited perspective on his suffering. The suffering makes sense to us because we know that this is a test and Job is passing the test. But don't miss the sovereign perspective. Just imagine this picture, this perspective. Satan approaches God, God surrounded by 100,000 angels. And Satan says to God, he doesn't really trust you, love you, worship you. It's just because you give him all the stuff. And God says, take the stuff. He will still praise me. Take his health. He will still praise me. Job does not know that's going on. 
And so Job loses all of his property. It's plundered. His children, his family is destroyed. He has boils all over his body. And you could picture the hosts of heaven, angels and demons, peering over, waiting for what was going to happen. Was Job going to curse God? And Job rises from the middle of his suffering and he says, God gives and God takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And unbeknownst to Job, at that instant, 200,000 arms from angels go rising into the air and cry out, worthy is the God of Job. And a hundred thousand voices sing his praises as Satan runs in humiliation. This is a very different perspective on suffering from heaven than we sometimes have on earth. Job glorifies God, he humiliates Satan. Two more texts, one here and then I'm going to add one more. Zechariah chapter 3. Next to the last book in the Old Testament, what happens there is Joshua the high priest is envisioned as standing before God as a representative of the people of Judah. And Satan is the accuser standing there accusing Joshua the high priest to accuse the Joshua, Joshua the high priest of sin. And what happens is this is a picture of God cleansing his people, removing their guilt, giving them his righteousness. At the end of this passage, you look at the end of Zechariah 3, you see one of the most beautiful promises of Christ, the Messiah who's going to come, the servant of God, the branch of David, the stone, the promised Messiah. And the picture is, no, we don't have time to dive into it. We'll just have to take my word for it on this one. Satan is limited. Satan is limited. If you look at Zechariah 3, Satan's not even allowed to talk. He's there to accuse, but he doesn't get the chance. Again, he speaks when spoken to. He's limited. Sin is the problem. The people of Judah had sinned and they needed to be cleansed. They were responsible for their sin. They needed God to remove their guilt. And by his grace, he did. And he promised that a savior is coming. It's an incredible text. Incredible text. Now, I do want you to turn to this last one. It's not in your notes. So just kind of make a little, write out something to the side. Daniel chapter 10. I've mentioned it on a couple of different occasions, but you've got to see this, at least a little glimpse of this. So turn with me to Daniel chapter 10, and I want us to read Daniel chapter 10, verse 12, 12 through 14. The whole book of Daniel really gives a lot of insight into angels and demons. We see this picture throughout the book. But what happened was Daniel had set his heart on understanding why the people of God had not returned to Israel, and he was fasting and praying for an extended length of time for God to restore his people. And after he had been fasting and praying for a long time, then an angel appeared to him. It's one of the descriptions we saw earlier of an angel, but I want you to hear what the angel said to him. We'll just skip to that. Daniel chapter 10, verse 12. He continued. This is the angel speaking to Daniel. Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God. Your words were heard. The first day you started praying and fasting, your words were heard. And I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, Archangel Michael, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns a time yet to come. And he goes on to talk about more of what's happening. But what the picture is here is 
the angel saying, your prayers were heard on day one. And for 21 days, this is the picture. And the picture is not just wrestling with a, a king, the prince of Persia. The implication here in this passage is that this is, this is a, an evil angel. And the picture is that Daniel began praying on day one. His prayers were heard on day one. And for 21 days, there is a war raging in the heavenlies between this angel and prince, evil spirit in Persia. And Michael's brought in, some heavy artillery brought in. And, and the victory, a breakthrough happens. And then the angel goes on to talk about how this is going to affect Greece in the days to come. It's really an astounding passage of war. Just think of this. As we're praying and fasting and seeking God and calling out, the picture in Daniel 10 is that there is literally war raging in the heavenlies. Now, Daniel did not know this. Daniel's not saying, angel, do this, angel, do that. He's praying to God. And unbeknownst to him, there is a war raging in the heavenlies in response to his prayer. And he perseveres in praying. He doesn't stop. He perseveres and victory breaks through. That's the picture in Daniel chapter 10. You study that text, it will drive you to your knees and help you to get a glimpse into what is happening when we get serious about going to God in prayer. So these are seven Old Testament passages. I want us to step back and I want, I want to give you two observations, three conclusions, and then one question. Okay, two observations, three conclusions, one question. First, two very interesting observations that I want to point out to you that are really pretty surprising, especially when you think about the fact, remember, that the culture surrounding Israel in the Old Testament had demonic explanations for everything. It was normal to talk about demons, evil spirits. But when you get to the Old Testament, what you find is the Old Testament minimizes Satan and demons. You don't see the Old Testament talking everywhere about Satan's and de Satan and demons and evil spirits. As God inspired his word among his people, that was not prevalent. The reality is the Old Testament does not endorse the occultic worldview of the surrounding nations. It does not accommodate all their demonic explanations. In other words, Old Testament is giving a totally different view of the devil, evil spirits, and God. The focus is not where it is in the pagan cultures around. Now, it's not that demons, evil spirits were not at work. But the focus in the Old Testament is on minimizing Satan and demons and instead on maximizing human responsibility. This is key. You do not see a focus in the Old Testament on a problem in inhabiting demons. You don't see the Old Testament say Noah struggled with the demon of drunkenness. And David struggled with the demon of adultery or Moses struggled with the demon of unbelief or Israel struggled with the demon of idolatry. You don't see the work of Satan and demons talked about like that. Instead, the focus, the problem is in the human heart. Not in inhabiting demons, but in the human heart. And, heart. and this is a maximizing of human responsibility. The locus of evil in the Old Testament and sin is not in demonic explanations, but in the human heart. You see this in Genesis 6, wickedness of the earth, how great man's wickedness had come, inclination of the thoughts of his heart, Ecclesiastes 9, picture of evil in the hearts. Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things beyond cure. Who can understand it? This is key. Hold on to this because they're going to come back to this before the night's over. This is key. 
minimizing Satan and demons in the Old Testament, maximizing human responsibility for sin. The problem is not with an inhabiting demons. The problem is with the human heart. Three Old Testament conclusions. Number one, this should come as no surprise, God is sovereign over Satan. We've seen this over and over and over again. Here's the deal. Satan possesses unlimited malice. He is a liar, he is a destroyer, he is an accuser and a murderer. That's the bad news. The good news is Satan possesses limited power. I love what one writer said. He said, the one who utterly enslaves the nations in the darkness of evil and death is a predictable supporting actor in the larger story of God's holy love and holy wrath. That's it. He's a predictable supporting actor in a larger story. Satan possesses unlimited malice, limited power. God's sovereign, not Satan. God's sovereign over nature, nations, life, death, disease. He's sovereign over all. Satan is not sovereign over nations. Satan is not sovereign over disease. Satan is not sovereign over cancer. Satan is not sovereign over whether or not we live or die. James says, if the Lord wills, we will live. Not we will die. God is sovereign over all these things, not Satan. Second conclusion, sin is the primary human problem. We are responsible for our sin. The Old Testament does not put blame or responsibility for evil on Satan. People are, responsibility, are, are responsible for their evil. Who's responsible for sin in Genesis 3? Adam and Eve. Who's responsible for sin in the story of Saul? Saul is responsible for it. Ahab is responsible for his sin. Men, women are responsible for their sin. Their Old Testament teaches that we, as a result, must respond to God in light of our sin. If we're responsible, then we're responsible for responding to him. And the picture we see over and over throughout the Old Testament is either we repent of our sin or we die in our sin. And that is God's message to his people over and over and over again. How do you deal with idolatry? How do you deal with sexual perversion? How do you deal with lying and cheating and stealing? And the answer the Old Testament gives every time is repent, repent. Turn from your sin and turn to God. Trust in God, follow God, obey God. Notice the conspicuous absence here in the Old Testament. We're not seeing demons cast out of people in the Old Testament. We're seeing people struggling with sin, being told to repent and trust in God. That is where spiritual warfare is happening in the Old Testament. Hold on to that. Repent or die. Spiritual warfare in this way is God-centered, not demon-centered. God's on center stage. Demons are players in the story. They're the background. Devil's on a leash in the Old Testament. But now this whole thing does bring a question. If God is sovereign over evil and he is even using evil spirits as agents of his judgment or to accomplish his purpose, then how can a holy God relate to evil? It's a very important question. That's the question I want to put before us then. How does God relate to sin? How does God relate to evil? And I want to give you an overview that... All right, the challenge is for the next five minutes to stay with me through this picture because it's about to get really Old Testament thick, Old Testament doctrine, theology, and I'm convinced our heads are gonna be spinning in just about five minutes. So just try to stick, stick with me, okay? God relates to sin variably in different ways. That's what 
I mean by variably, different ways, different times. Sometimes in the Old Testament, God prevents sin. We're not gonna look at all these examples, but that's what Genesis 26 shows us there. Sometimes God prevents sin. At other times, God permits sin. He allows sin. He gives us over to our sin, the Old Testament teaches. Other times, we see God directs sin. He takes sin and he directs it for good. This is the story of Joseph's brothers. We'll come back to that story in just a minute. Sometimes God directs sin for good. Sometimes God limits sin. Maybe he doesn't prevent evil completely in a situation, but he does restrain the extent or the effect of sin. So God relates to sin in all these ways, but don't miss this. God never directly causes sin. This is key. God never directly causes sin. God never sins in Scripture, and God is never blamed for sin in Scripture. Scripture nowhere shows God as directly doing anything evil. Don't miss this. God is never a personal agent tempting us to evil. Even in his sovereignty over evil, he is still able to maintain his perfect holiness. His holiness and his goodness are never at one moment impugned or questioned as he relates to sin. And this is so key because if we're not careful here, we'll fall off into a couple of different errors. If we say that God himself does evil, then we deny that he is the good and righteous God who is worthy of all our worship. So we don't want to go there. Scripture does not take us there. At the same time, if we say that God is, is not sovereign over everything, that there are parts of evil out here that he is not sovereign over, and that means there are some things that are out of his control, which also does not square with Scripture. So we want to make sure not to jump off this horse on either side. We've got to stay here on this picture. God never directly causes sin. So how do we process that? God and evil. Well, these are, this is how God relates to sin. Now think about evil. God relates to good and evil asymmetrically, meaning in different ways. He relates to good in a way that is different than the way he relates to evil. Okay? The head slowly starting to spin. Here we go. God and good, all that is good is under his sovereignty. Everything that's good is under his sovereignty. God is completely and totally good and he's in control of everything that is good. And I would take it a step further and say all that is good is morally chargeable to him, to God. All that is good flows from who? From God. We don't see anywhere where good is morally chargeable ultimately to a creature. It's always to the creator. This is the whole point. You get to the New Testament of Revelation, or Romans chapter 3, verse 9 through 20. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? No, we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all understanding. There is no one who does righteous. No, no one is righteous, not even one. No one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So we don't bring about good. God is the one who is credited with bringing about good. Everything that is good comes from God. He is primary. We're secondary in anything good. That make sense? All that is good is morally chargeable to him. Keep that in mind because when it comes to God and evil, all that is evil is 
under his sovereignty, just like all that is good. It's just what we've seen. All that's evil is under his, under his sovereignty. Lamentations 3, at the end of that, that passage, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? And you look at these passages, and what you'll see, like in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, what you'll see is a picture of God hardening Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And you'll see this picture all throughout of the fact that everything that is evil is under his sovereignty in all of these texts. However, here's the deal that is different. Whereas all that is good is morally chargeable to God in Scripture, all that is evil is not morally chargeable to him. Simply, plainly put, the Old Testament and Scripture altogether never charges God with evil. It always attributes evil to other agents, other causes. Scripture rightfully and continually blames moral creatures for the evil they do. And we see this, it's Isaiah 66, the end of that passage is a prime example. But the blame for evil, the responsibility for evil is always on the creature whether man or demon who does it, not the creator. And this is where we come face to face with one of the core truths in the gospel. God is totally and holy and completely good. And we have sinned and turned from him and rebelled against him. And there is nothing good in us, Paul says. And therefore we need the goodness of God to even begin to turn toward him. All that is good, morally chargeable to him. All that is evil, morally chargeable to us, creatures, man, evil spirits, demons. Now, how does all this work together? This is what I want to remind you. This is what we talked about in Who is God, Secret Church. Remember the compatible plan of God. The compatible plan of God. How does this work together? And it's these two truths. Now, how do they come together is a mystery. But these two truths, number one, God is in control. God is totally in control. Number two, we make choices. God is in control, we make choices. And both of those statements are true. Let me give you two examples. Genesis 50, Joseph's brothers. Let me ask you a question. Were Joseph's brothers guilty of sin when they sold their brother into slavery and lied to cover it up? Were they guilty of sin? Were they responsible for that sin? Absolutely. Was God in control of it? Every single detail. And he was using it to bring about the redemption and salvation of his people in a famine that was coming. God in control, us making choices. This picture even more beautifully described in Acts 2. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth is a man credited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Were Jesus' accusers, tormentors, and killers responsible for murdering him on a cross? Absolutely. They're responsible for the sin of murder here? Did they choose to murder him? Absolutely. You put him to death. Was God sovereign over this picture? Every detail. God was not sitting back just hoping something like this would happen to bring about the salvation of his people. God, this was his set purpose and foreknowledge to use the most gruesome picture of evil in all of history to provide salvation for all of us. 
And so these come together. God is in control, we are making choices. And as a result, it helps us to think through. God is sovereign over everything, good and evil both. But he never sins, he is never blamed for sin. This is the picture of spiritual warfare in the Old Testament. God, totally sovereign. Man, completely responsible. The focus is not on Satan, demons, casting this out or that out. The focus is repent, turn to God, and you're responsible for doing that. And everything that's happening is under the sovereignty of God. And he is ultimately using even evil to bring about good. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.